Good morning. So, welcome to Carnegie Free Church. We are so glad you're here joining us in the auditorium and those of you joining us online. You matter. Because every person matters. And we're thankful that you're here to seek truth and embrace gospel together with us. So my mom uh, used to tell me stories when I was grow- about when I was growing up. There was this paper boy in our neighborhood. And uh, she told me stories of this paper boy because she was friends with all the neighbor ladies. And they would share stories about this paper boy. And so she told me this one story that, that uh, the, the paper boy was delivering paper to a neighbor down the street. And this neighbor particularly has a, a kind of a grassy knoll hill that goes up. And at the top of the hill is the porch. And somehow she was happening to be watching out the window apparently this morning. She sees him carry his bags over to the curb. And he takes the bag off and sets it on the ground. He grabs a paper. And he proceeds to plop down on his stomach. And he crawls army style up this hill. And he reaches the top. She said he puts the paper toward his mouth like he's pulling out a pin and launches the thing like a grenade onto the patio. And then he stands up, runs down the hill, grabs his bag, and makes good on his escape before it explodes. Well, I, I will say that any similarity between that paper boy and me is no coincidence. I had a vivid imagination as a child. And uh, it was not uncommon for me to picture myself as being a a valiant soldier or uh, a Mario Mario Andretti race car driver or an astronaut to the moon or maybe the first man to Mars or being a superhero. I wanted my life to mean something. I wanted to be bigger than myself. I wanted my life to matter as a kid. And I will bet that every one of you as kids had similar dreams, similar fantasies. We want our lives to matter. And that's by design. You God made us that way. God made us for for not just significance, but eternal significance. The problem is that we blew it in the Garden of Eden. We screwed it all up, right? And so as we grow older now, we start to think of excuses why our life doesn't matter. We start to think of reasons why we'll never be significant. And then when we come to Christ, an amazing thing happens. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And he begins to dust off those dreams because he made us for significance. There is something in the side of every believer in Christ that says you know you matter for something more than perhaps what you're doing right now. We know it. But we still have those fears. But I want to challenge you to think today about how to dust off those desires for significance.
Because the Corinthians felt the same thing. They wanted to be significant to the point where they um, thought that if they had just the right gift, if they just used the right gift, they would be significant. Right? And why not? Because when you think about it, the vast majority of the Bible was written by prophets and teachers and pastors. If I, how do you get more significant than that? If I just had the right spiritual gift, then I could be significant. And that's what they were thinking too. Now, it's significant to note that Paul does not criticize them for wanting to be significant. You know, earlier in the letter, Paul criticizes them for various things. He has no problem calling out the truth in the ways they need to grow, but this was not one of them. Even though they were bickering amongst each other in the midst of wanting the best gift, he didn't, he didn't criticize him for that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12.31a, he says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. He wants that desire. That's something that God instilled in us. Now, before we go any further, I want to point out just a few reminders and key items of context here. First, recognize that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. He didn't write it to any one individual. He wrote it to the collective church, which was made up of probably several house churches, perhaps other larger congregations. So most of this letter is written... To the church in Corinth, think church in Kearney, of which we're a part, church in Corinth, to help them understand how they should function whenever they gather together corporately in any measure, any size, that might be public or observable. So that's the first thing. Keep that in mind as we go through this. Second, recognize that each believer in the Corinthian church already had a spiritual gift. So when we make our profession of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us and gives us a spiritual gift as he apportions it according to the need of the body at the time. But he says, desire the greater gifts. The implication there is that if, as Jesus talks in parables, if I'm a good steward with the talents and gifts he's given me, he'll add gift upon gift. And if that's the case, then desire the greater gifts. Next, recognize in chapter 12 that the Corinthians wrongly believed that the most visible gifts, the charismatic gifts, maybe the mysterious kind of gifts, would be the ones that would give them the most significance. <clears throat> Specifically, the gift of tongues. And Paul in chapter 12 proceeds to educate them about the spiritual gifts. If you haven't listened to Pastor Adrian's message last week on chapter 12, I strongly encourage you to listen to it. Very good message. It'll fill in a lot of the gaps. But what he's trying to do is help them understand that Every gift is vital. Every gift is necessary, equally necessary for the proper functioning of the body. 
However, there were some gifts that were greater than others. And the three that he lists out to begin with are apostleship. Now that would be like, this is apostleship with a little a, not a capital A, like not, not the 12 apostles. Barnabas was called an apostle. Apostle. There were several others in the New Testament called an apostle, along with Paul. This is the idea of, uh, of apostle just means someone who's being sent on a mission. Think missionary, think church planter, think evangelist, right? Think a, a high-level leader in a denomination, something along those lines. The next one is, is uh, prophet. So when you think of prophet, you know, we think of predicting the future. Yeah, that, that's part of it, but really it's the thus saith the Lord was the primary purpose of the prophet. The preaching might be part of that, right? So a, a prophet might have a good sense from the Lord as, as he recognizes what's going on in the body, how God might want the, the church to proceed. Uh, the last one was teacher. So a teacher is somebody who knows how to understand the teachings of Christianity and knows how to disseminate those in an understandable way. So Paul says, actually, the, the three greater gifts are those, and at the bottom, actually, was the gift of tongues. And so the, the Corinthians had actually flipped on its head what they thought was the most important or the greater gifts. So that's why Paul goes on, and, and, and he, wants to, he wants to remind them, excuse me, that there is something more important than the gift itself. And this is where we move into this chapter, this next chapter. There's something more important than the gift itself. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31b, and, that, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way of what? The most excellent way of gaining eternal significance with your life, making your life count for eternal significance. They were thinking it was having the right gift, and why not, right? Because, like I said, most of the Bible is written by those people. If there's one thing I want you to remember out of this message this morning, it's this, this big idea. The best way to make your life one of eternal significance is to use your spiritual gift in love. You see, Paul tells the Corinthians that the gift is less important than the manner in which the gift is used. Do I know my gift? Do I practice my gift? Those are two great questions. But the bigger question is, am I practicing my gift in love? Am I practicing it in love? And Paul is not saying in this passage, by the way, that you have to love perfectly before you bother to practice your gift. If you're not going to love perfectly, don't bother practicing it. That's not what he's saying. Paul knows, we all know, that we are broken vessels and God uses us in spite of our imperfections, okay? His point is, rather than put the focus on which gift you have, rather than putting the focus on trying to perfect your gift, put the focus on trying to perfect your love as you use the gift. 
Paul begins chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians this way. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. How annoying. Without love, my words mean nothing of eternal significance. But the world will tell us that if you want your life to mean something, you want to be significant, you should desire to have what comes out of your mouth be eloquent and beautiful. Like Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a dream speech. Or Solomon's great wise proverbs and sayings. That's how you get significance. But Paul says, in essence, if you don't do that in love, it means absolutely nothing. And it's quite possible the Corinthians thought that they liked the gifts of tongues because it sounded like the language of angels. But regardless, without love, like a word spoken or a clanging cymbal or crash of a cymbal in a soundproof room, the reverberation never makes it outside of the walls. In the same way, words spoken, if they're not spoken in love, never make it past the walls of this age into eternity. Paul goes on. If I have the gift of prophecy, so first he starts out with the gift of tongues. If I have the gift of tongues, which they thought was the most important, now he goes to what really is the most important. If I have the gift of prophecy even, and can fathom all mysteries or have the gift of knowledge, and if I have a faith, the gift of faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. That is pretty incredible. Without love, my words mean nothing. Next, without love, I am nothing of eternal significance. But the world tells us again, if we want to be significant, we need to feed the world with the most profound and enlightening ideas and thoughts. We need to believe in and achieve the most audacious of dreams. We need to teach people that they can do anything if they just believe it. Like genius Albert Einstein or philosophers Plato or Aristotle or even the Apostle Paul or being achievers and believers like Oprah Winfrey or Tony Robbins or Simon Sinek or you fill in the blank. The truth is, regardless of the magnitude of my earthly wisdom, regardless of the magnitude of my worldly success or how many people I inspire to try harder, unless they were done in Christian love. They mean very little. Why Christian love? Because the world defines love in all sorts of ways. Many people think what they're doing, they're doing in love. But we know from Scripture that apart from Christ, I can do a little bit. Is that what it says? This is a test. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing nothing of eternal significance. 
It is only Christ's love infused in me that lives through me that actually can achieve anything of eternal significance. So Paul goes on next. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. He says, now if I give all I possess, in other words, if I have the gift of giving, sacrificial giving, if I give all I possess to the poor and even give my over my body to hardship, even perhaps as a martyr, to the degree that I could boast about it, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Without love, I achieve nothing of eternal significance. Again, the world tells us if you want to be somebody significant, just add your list to the greatest philanthropists and martyrs of our day. And we see both rich and poor people today sacrificing their wealth, giving all of their money, much of their money, large sums of their money, giving their body even to the point of being thrown in jail for the cause of the day, the worthy cause of the day. And it's amazing how much humans will sacrifice so long as they get the credit in accolades, in monuments, in tributes, rewards, glory for themselves or for their family name. This is true, by the way, of 100% of people that nobody gives sacrificially unless they believe that they or someone else will profit from it. That's why Paul says, you gain nothing, you profit nothing. If what you do in sacrificial giving isn't done in love, it gains nothing. Jesus says, what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Nothing. Nothing of eternal significance will be profited by the giver, the receiver, or anyone else through sacrificial giving unless it is done in love. Okay, so Paul now shifts from doing life together without love to doing life together with love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The next point, love is the definition of eternal significance. The definition of love that Paul has here is not exhaustive, by the way. He's not saying love doesn't at times have to be tough. In fact, earlier on in this book, he was pretty tough on them. He spoke truth to them that was kind of harsh, but they needed to hear it, and he did it out of love for them so that they could see what is true and come back on the path of righteousness together as God's people. What he's doing here is he's pointing out the opposite of the way that they are currently behaving when they're meeting corporately and they're using their gifts 
They're being rude to each other, unkind. They're being impatient, losing their tempers with each other. They're, they're being jealous of what the others have in terms of their gifts and their prominence. They're bragging about it. They're taking pride in it as if that, that gift didn't come from God, it came from them, and so on and so forth. Realize that all of this description of love cannot be practiced in isolation. Love can only be done in community. There has to be another person. So when we're talking about all these attributes, it's how we treat each other. Now there's a lot of debate over what the true opposite of love is. Some would say that the opposite of love is hatred for others. You hate them. You want to see them destroyed. Some would say that, no, it's just apathy. You just, they don't even exist to you. You don't care. From my standpoint, I, I think the opposite of love is selfishness. Right? Because love chooses to give sacrificially that others might benefit. Selfishness chooses to take from others sacrificially that I might benefit. And so this was the way the Corinthians were behaving with each other. Selfishness chooses to benefit others or benefit ourselves. Love benefits others. As in John, 1 John 4, 16, it says, and, we, and so we know and rely on the love of God, that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Then Paul crowns all the attributes of love with this, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Love never fails. I don't know about you, but I fail a lot. And I fail a lot because I fail to love a lot. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Recognize he's listing out all the gifts, or at least a partial list. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness or perfection comes, what is in part disappears. Gifts do not achieve works of eternal significance. Only love, the next point, only love achieves works of eternal significance. Love never fails to achieve something significant, whether it be a small act of love or a large act of love. Love is the very means by which God achieved eternal life for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He sacrificed for our benefit. Paul now wants his readers to see things from a, an eternal perspective. He wants to screw their heads on straight, right? And wants you to see things from a little bigger perspective here, Corinthians. Charles. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 through 12, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish... I put ways of childhood behind me. The idiom actually in the Greek is the idea that I, I set childish things idle. I'm, I set them idle. You know, when you realize you're an adult, you start, you start 
leaving your toys, you don't play with them anymore. Because you know, they're just for childhood, right? They're childish. For now we, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face, see Christ face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, then I shall know fully, know fully Christ, even as Christ fully knows me, even as I am fully known. Okay? So we will, we will know Christ, and he will know us fully when he returns. Completeness or perfection will not come until he returns. Only then will the gifts any of the gifts become obsolete. As Paul states back in chapter 1, verse 7, therefore do not, you do not, let me state that again, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. His point is that you will have all the gifts until Christ returns. When Christ returns, they cease. When we reach heaven, or rather when heaven reaches us with his return, when we see him face to face, then completeness, perfection has come, and we will no longer need the spiritual gifts because we will all be made perfect. Spiritual gifts, in essence, would be child's play in heaven. We don't need them. We set them idle. When the perfect comes, we don't need the imperfect things. They are an incomplete provision for an incomplete, imperfect world which only have a time-bound purpose, which we'll learn about next week. Now, Paul goes on and he says, the only things that are going to abide, all the gifts will cease. The only, there's only three Christian virtues that will make it into eternity. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, Next point, love is the greatest of all that is of eternal significance. Faith, unlike the spiritual gifts, will not cease. In fact, Scripture says our faith will be perfected, that when we see Christ face to face, all doubt will be removed. But we will still have faith in the, in the work of God and what he did for us. That will remain forever. Hope. This is where it really gets exciting to me, okay? Forgive me if I get a little excited, but when I think of what Paul is saying here, if, it's just got to get you excited. I hope it does. Hope will not cease like the gifts. Hope, Scripture says, will be fulfilled. Not just the hope of attaining heaven, but the hope that every moment into eternity will be filled with the wonder of God. Purpose for each moment. Confidence that God has it in his hands. I see nowhere in Scripture that says that when we get to heaven, somehow or another, we're going to know the future any more to any more degree than we already know it today. Only God knows the beginning from the end. So what that means is for eternity, moment by moment, we're going to have the hope of what's going to happen next. What's God going to do next? What's God going to do with us now? 
That to me is exciting. But love, uh, love is supreme to both faith and hope because we will enjoy the love of God perfectly forever. We will enjoy loving each other perfectly forever. We will enjoy the love of each other perfectly forever. We will enjoy all of creation perfectly forever. Mm. Every word spoken, every deed done will be done in perfect love. There will be shalom. Shalom, peace. But shalom encompasses more than peace. It encompasses wholeness, love. Can you imagine? Shalom forever. I really hope you choose to join us through the Rooted Initiative this fall. We're doing it as a staff, and you know I've been walking with the Lord some degrees better than others sometimes, but I've been walking with him for 40 years. And sometimes I can, I can get to thinking that, that I know everything already, right? But as with any sport, sometimes you have to go back to the basics. And I'm telling you, the way they do the basics in this study, it's an experience, not a study. It's, it's an experience, not just for you with God, but you with others. And what I love about it is they really, they lay the foundation that when God created us, he created us in shalom, in peace. We were in shalom with him. We were in shalom with each other. We were in shalom with all of creation and we blew it, (laughs) right? But he's in the process of having his will done on earth as it is in heaven to a greater degree day by day by our actions of love. In fact, as Pastor Adrian reminded us last week, the world is desperate to see a church that is united in faith and love. Jesus said in John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you, should love, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You realize that between 2021 and 2022, there was an increase of 47% of all unruly behavior on airplanes worldwide. If you just do a simple search online, you will find all sorts of videos of unruly behavior on airplanes. You will see people yelling and screaming at each other at the top of their lungs. You'll see people pulling somebody out of the chair. You'll see them dragging them down the aisle, pulling hair, screaming, fighting, throwing fists. Now, that's bad, I understand. But stop and think how many flights there are every day where somebody sits in the seat and never even acknowledges for three hours the person sitting next to him. You know, churches are a lot like airplanes. 
I know there are some of you here who were raised in churches where you were invisible. You weren't greeted, you weren't acknowledged. You were raised in churches where there was backbiting and envy and jealousy, anger, jockeying for power positions, being told you weren't doing enough, you weren't good enough. Hmm. A lot like those planes. Can you imagine for a minute? What if you stepped on a plane and the captain comes and greets you by name, Charles? It is so good to have you on this plane. We look forward to taking you exactly where you need to go. I hope you enjoy your time. If there's anything we can do to serve you, just let us know. We're here to serve you. And then somebody walks you back to your chair. You sit down. You take off. And the person in front of you stands up, turns around, and says, hey, I know it's really tight in here, but I've been up for like almost 48 hours trying to prepare a, a, a presentation I have to give in about four hours. Would you mind if I just set my seat back? And wouldn't it be cool if the person back there said, dude, I get it. You need the rest. Yeah, but there's not much legroom. It's only a few hours. I'll be okay. Get some rest. And what if you look around and you begin to see, wow, there's there's not a single person who's not in a conversation or not interacting with somebody. You know, over here somebody's praying with somebody, and over here somebody's mourning with somebody, and somebody's weeping with somebody, somebody's laughing with somebody. These people are in casual conversation, these people are praying together. Can you imagine looking around and seeing that there's not one single person on that plane who isn't being acknowledged? If you were were to think, too, of a woman, a mom, the baby starts to scream, and it's reverberating around the whole plane. You know how that is. Screaming at the top of their lungs. And the woman, the mom stands up and says, I'm so sorry. I, I would step out if I could, but my brother died yesterday, and I need to get home. That hits me. Sorry. That hits me because that happened to me. It wasn't a mom with a baby. There's a woman sitting next to me who was very rude, very impatient. And I finally, I was quick to pass judgment until I asked, is there something I can do? Is is anything wrong? And she said, my mom died yesterday. There are people like that everywhere. everywhere so I prayed with her wept with her can you imagine waking up from a nap in the middle of a flight like that (laughs) 
what planet am I on? I don't know what these people are on, but I want some of it. Can you imagine a church like that? Where people come aboard and they're loved, where every person matters? No matter what your spiritual gift is, the best way to make your life one of eternal significance is to use it. And by all means, use it. And most importantly, use it in love. That, my brothers and sisters, is the most excellent way. Let's pray together. Ah, Lord, you are a good God. Forgive us for the times we aren't so good. We appreciate your love. Help us to love better. Lord, help us to love our spouses. Help us to love our families. Help us to love our neighbors, our co-workers, our communities. Help us to love our enemies. Lord, may we experience the significance of love that as we share a word of kindness, as we share the love of Christ, that we see the light in another's eyes that they are loved with an everlasting love. Maybe for the first time ever realizing that. Thank you, Lord, that each of those acts of love, whether we've led somebody to Christ or we've encouraged somebody in Christ, we're going to live with those people in eternity forever. And those acts of kindness will be remembered. God, we give you the glory. Because apart from you, we can do nothing. but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Pray this in Jesus' name.